Talking Feds is sponsored by our friends at Total Wine & More, rewarding curious connoisseurs with a wondrous selection of wine, spirits, and beers. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. We had another eventful news week. Afghanistan fell in quick fashion to the Taliban after the U.S. forces withdrew. And viewers around the world watched scenes of Bedlam reminiscent of the fall of Saigon in 1975. Domestic debate divided between those who believed the U.S. was failing to keep faith with its Afghani allies and those who thought that the withdrawal was inevitable and was always going to be chaotic and tragic. COVID Part 2, the Delta variant, is sharply increasing in the world and the U.S., especially in states where there remain large populations of unvaccinated people. Governors who are ordering state schools not to impose mask mandates are finding themselves on the short end of defiance and a flurry of lawsuits. Data from the 2020 census was released and it showed an aging and diversifying nation where the total white population decreased and the number of people identifying as more than one race or ethnicity grew at the fastest rate. The country also saw the second slowest rate of overall growth in its history. But we bypass these stories today in favor of a detailed look at voting rights, both because it remains the most pressing public policy issue in the country and because it's very quickly coming to a rapid boil and approaching a now or never point. And to do it, we have a spectacular trio of expert guests, and they are. First, returning to Talking Feds, Laura Coates, a CNN anchor and senior legal analyst, She's also the host of the Daily Laura Coach Show on SiriusXM. She's a former trial attorney in the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ and the author of You Have the Right, A Constitutional Guide to Policing the Police. Laura, welcome back to Talking Feds. Thank you. Josh Marshall, an American journalist and the founder, editor, and publisher of the independent news organization Talking Points Memo which publishes a broad range of reporting about American politics, public policy, and political culture. I just have to give a quick note of gratitude because it's been my go-to blog for its intelligent analysis of all stripes since before there were blogs. Josh now also hosts the Josh Marshall Podcast. This is his first visit to Talking Feds. Thanks so much for being here, Josh Marshall. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Finally... We're really honored to welcome Beto O'Rourke. He came to national prominence, as everyone knows, in 2018 as a candidate for Senate against incumbent Ted Cruz, the closest U.S. Senate rate in Texas in over 40 years. He was a candidate for president in the 2020 election and from 2013 to 2019. He represented Texas's 16th congressional district in the House of Representatives. He now runs the Political Action Committee, Powered by People, which focuses on assisting Democratic candidates to try to flip the Texas House from red to blue. Beto O'Rourke, thank you so much for joining Talking Feds. It's an honor to be with you. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Let's start with timing for the federal legislation. So the watchword for months has been the Dems need to pass a bill before the August recess. 
They didn't do it. What's the cost of the delay? And where are we on the game clock now? You know, I think those deadlines are kind of real until they're not real. I don't think those kind of deadlines are the hard deadlines. And I don't think we should feel like everything's over because we're already in the midst of the August recess. I would divide it into two sort of categories. There are operational things. If we think that what we're talking about is the For the People Act or this kind of trimmed down, mansionized version of the For the People Act that seems to be under discussion now, there are certain things operationally that will not be able to be put into effect. There's the potential rules about gerrymandering. There's commissions. There are certain things that we may be pushing against a deadline or already past a deadline. But there's still a huge amount that can still be accomplished for 2022 and going forward, even setting that aside. What we're still coming up against is what we know, the filibuster and two Senate Democrats who are wedded to the filibuster. The big question is, if we assume that this big double infrastructure package will come together, once that comes together, is the attitude of one of exhaustion and people saying, hey, look, the Senate works even with the filibuster. We can all be happy. Let's not be tinkering with the filibuster. Or is it a case that President Biden having come off a very big political victory, will be empowered and be in a stronger position to say, look, we have to do this. And I think both of those things are possible. I wouldn't say I'm terribly optimistic, but I think both of those paths are very possible. I do think, and this is unfortunate, that all political power is unitary. And what has happened in the last two months with the emergence of the Delta variant and this fourth wave plus what is happening in Afghanistan now, both of them are weakening the president. Certainly not in the COVID case because he didn't do anything wrong. I don't think that much in the Afghanistan case that he did anything wrong. But people pay attention to these things and he is being weakened by that. So those to me are all the different moving parts. I don't think we're too late. Some things operationally were pretty late in the game, but this can still happen in the fall. Quite a lot to unpack there, and we'll talk plenty about the filibuster and Biden. I do want to focus on whether anything tangible has been lost. Josh mentions the gerrymander problem. I think the reason for the focus on the August recess is that now the data from the census has come out, and that means states like Texas, Florida, and Georgia can begin to start drawing gerrymandered maps. What impact legally does that have to subsequent challenges? Because all of these things are going to be subject to a flurry of lawsuits. Just the phrasing you used just now, that they'll now be free to gerrymander. You know, the idea, the presumption that that will occur is based on not just sort of coincidence, but it really on more than an educated guess of what's going on. Because before you get to conversations about the ideas of the filibuster. We have this notion that this is a government of, for, and by the people, but we also know that it's been premised on limiting the power to all people and that those who are in power want to hold on to it with both hands. And one key way to do that is to restrict who can really elect their candidate of choice. And gerrymandering with the census data from several years ago when we saw the notion, not even that long ago, the idea of trying to limit the ability to answer questions or try to instill some sort of fear and intimidation by asking questions about citizenship. The idea of exploiting 
the aspect of COVID-19 and the reluctance of people to want to respond to it or the ease in which they could actually do so. And that people going door to door to ask the questions. All of this around this backdrop, essentially, of the fact that we don't have a strong voting rights act any longer because you don't have the preclearance formula. So you ask about the legality of the ideas and the ease in which you can do it. Remember, back in 2013, when the Supreme Court decided that suddenly we were in some sort of post-racial world or to use the paraphrase of the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg of we're going to just throw away the umbrella because we're not getting wet in the storm without the ability to now using a preclearance formula to allow the Department of Justice, which I'm an alum of that voting section, DOJ, the rights division, to be able to know in advance how the data is going to be used, what you're going to do in terms of the map creation, there's no mechanism right now other than after the fact, perhaps through an election cycle to figure out how they were drawn. There's no way to prevent. There's only one way to react. And so right now it would be legal in the sense of being able to draw the map as you see fit and then litigate after the fact, knowing that there is a very high chance that it'll take a long time to try to recognize the problem have a court actually correct it. And that should be the one of the most disturbing aspects for people looking at the ways in which that gutted Section 5 formula has a thousand lives and what the consequences are. There's no one to say, there's no data to say, wait a second, you're really going to draw this map, not in like a geometric shape, but one that actually suits the way you want to have a candidate based on maybe not racial, but now we're talking about partisan gerrymandering, right? knowing that there is a correlation. And so, unfortunately, without that Strong Voting Rights Act, the legality aspect of it is, is one that has to have a court look into it as opposed to prevent it from even taking place. Yeah, and there is no one to say because the Supreme Court has gotten out of the business, but also I just want to add the legal point. I agree with everything you said, but on gerrymandering, once Texas or Georgia had begun to draw these things, when it goes into court in a year or two or three, it's going to be a factor that will make courts reluctant to try to unscramble the the egg. So that's an issue. So Beto, I think what Laura raises goes right into the John Lewis act that the House introduced this week. But let me gauge your thoughts. Do you basically agree with Josh that notwithstanding all the talk of the last few months, 95% of everything that could have been gotten is still out there to get, and it's all coming down to the filibuster? Yes, it's still very possible. And I took note of the vote in the small hours last week in the Senate where they first tried to, to move forward on the For the People Act. This is that omnibus voting rights and democracy bill that would set up independent nonpartisan redistricting commissions to address this problem of gerrymander. It would shine a light on dark money, increase transparency. It would introduce automatic and same-day voter registration and make Election Day a national holiday. That, of course, failed for lack of a supermajority. It got all 50 Democrats voting for it. And then Majority Leader Schumer tried two more test votes, one, an anti-gerrymander bill, another to increase transparency on political donations. And so the next act in that drama that morning was for Senator Schumer to recognize Senator Manchin, who begins his speech by saying, 
screw the For the People Act. I hate that thing. I, I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Never mind the fact that he was a co-sponsor of it in 2019. Anyhow, he says what he has to say. But then he says, but I've got a compromise solution in mind that would do the following things, many of which are major tenets of the For the People Act. And then it swings back to Schumer, who says, mark my words, when we come back from recess, this is the first piece of legislation that we're going to take up. Now, Schumer could have just as easily said, look, we tried this a few weeks ago and failed. I tried it today. I couldn't get it done. I tried some test votes. Those didn't move forward. We've got a very busy calendar ahead of us. I'm sorry we tried, but this just isn't going to work this year. And instead, he doubled down. And I don't think he's in this to lose. So that gives me some hope. Now, the missing part of this is President Biden. None of this has a prayer if the president isn't going to put the full power of his office behind it. And thus far, he absolutely has not. And I look at two precedents, both of which have a connection to Texas. In 1890, you know, at the end of Reconstruction, there was a federal elections bill passed the House had the votes in the Senate to pass and was killed by a filibuster led by another Texan, Senator Koch in 1890. And President Harrison just stayed on the sidelines, having campaigned on restoring voting rights for African-Americans. It just didn't do shit. In 1965, you have another Texan, this time in the presidency, LBJ, who initially says, I don't think I can move these Senate Democrats from the South to vote for this thing. And Dr. King and Andrew Young and Fannie Lou Hamer and John Lewis importantly said, the hell you don't. We're going to give you that power by mobilizing the public and public sentiment, importantly. And they did that. And by March 15th of 65, you've got LBJ convening a joint session of Congress and pointing to what John Lewis had just led on Bloody Sunday and saying, we cannot allow this to be. We have the power to confer the right to vote. Let's use it. And by August 6th of that year, they have that sucker passed and signed into law. We need Biden to pick one of those two paths, and it's got to be the LBJ path. And if he does, I do think we can overcome the procedural barrier of the current filibuster, amend those rules, and get this thing passed. Without him, it's dead. Biden has been absent. He's wanted to stay both on the sidelines and I think be seen as the champion of bipartisanship based on his years in the Senate. It's done him pretty well in other settings, as you said, Josh, especially in infrastructure. But he's been resisting a lot of pressure, and especially from the left. Do you share this, it's dead, that unless he comes in, comes in strongly with the support for filibuster reform, voting rights will not pass in this Congress? Well, almost by definition, there's no way it will pass under the current filibuster rules. We can speculate about either truly getting rid of the filibuster or reforming it in some way, or even doing some sort of like, you know, one-off Bush v. Gore, we'll reform it for 10 minutes to pass this and it will never speak of it again kind of thing. I guess I have a slightly different take on that. What is really infuriating and baffling about this situation that I think is in some ways different from 1965 is that you had a big chunk of the Senate that you needed to say, you're not ready to do this thing, but we are going to say you got to do it. And this is history and the president's going to push you. And in this case, what we have is needing to push two people who are notionally in support of the bill to allow it to pass on a 50-50 vote. We mean Manchin and Cinema. Yes. And 
that creates this weirdness to the debate because, again, we're not supposedly not talking about support for the bill. We're talking about supporting being able to pass it on a majority vote. And we have both of these people who, for very different reasons, don't seem obviously exposed to conventional political pressure. So I 100% agree when this, in terms of what needs to happen, as soon as the infrastructure thing passes, the president needs to kind of put everything behind this. But what is kind of missing here to me is I'm not totally sure of how that connects to the decision-making with these two people whose approval is necessary to allow this to pass on a majority vote. A couple of things. One, it's interesting because when you think about what voting rights in 1965 was all about, it was this idea of waiting your turn. The civil rights notion of it was get in line. We're not quite ready to deal with this issue. We've got some more important things that are going to come first. And whether it was any other discussion or whether it's today's version of infrastructure, this is a real problem in terms of having the Democratic Party, in many respects, be able to look in the eyes of the electorate to whom they have tried to guarantee the needle would be moved if they were in the majority in the House, in the Senate, and certainly if they had the trifecta of being in the Oval Office. And then there's still this notion of, well, there are other things that need to come first. When many people look at this and say, hold on, the infrastructure of a democracy is voting rights. That's the infrastructure. And so everything else follows if you really are governed with the con- by the consent of the people. And I hear you when you talk about the filibuster and the process involved, and it couldn't help but think in my mind that phrase about President Biden as a creature of the Senate, right? And part of the reluctance politically to say, well, I don't want to step on the toes. I've been a member of the Senate for a very long time. I understand all those political notions and talking points, but I do think fundamentally there is that tension that can't be overcome that people are told you're going to have to wait your turn until it's important enough for it to be prioritized. Let's just pass this bipartisan package and let's prove that democracy can function in a bipartisan way. And then we'll get back to the issues of voting. And the midterm elections are knocking on the door. We've got to focus on X, Y, and Z. And I think that this is one of the frustrations when I talk to people about their concerns about how democracy works or whether it does work. It's this idea of at what point does voting rights or actions that are targeted in places like Georgia, which is sued by the DOJ, in places like Texas, we can name other states as well. If that's not where you push your weight around as the president of the United States or members of the House and the Senate, that's not where you do it. Where does it get done? And as important as infrastructure is, right? I wholeheartedly agree it's important. Marketability, if I ask some other person, do you need the potholes fixed or the trains running smoothly? Or do you want to be able to elect somebody who can actually advocate for you and not have your rights trampled on and not have it rolled back? I'm going to guess they're going to go with the idea of access to the polls, being able to have their votes count. The electorate, at some point is going to knock on the door with their questions. And they're not rhetorical when they say, at what point will voting rights be prioritized? At what point will you say that how you get to make decisions 
will be as important as the decisions that are made. Laura, your point about how long are we as a country going to have to wait for our democracy to be saved, especially if the president of the United States a month ago said we are undergoing the greatest single attack on American democracy since the Civil War. If that is in fact the case, why is it taking a backseat to so many other considerations? If the president is, for whatever reason, unwilling to take that next logical step and say, this is the greatest attack, and so I'm going to make the greatest effort to respond to this attack, what is preventing Senator Warnock, for example, from becoming the center of gravity in the Senate instead of Senator Manchin and saying, you know what, <laughs> to paraphrase you, Laura, I love infrastructure as much as the next guy, but I love the infrastructure of our democracy even more. I'm not giving you my vote on this wonderful bipartisan deal. I'm not playing ball until you fix this. And that may be a dumb question, but why has that not happened so far? I don't think it's a dumb question at all. I think that would change the calculus immediately. You're preaching to the choir about voting rights. I simply do not think that what has happened here is mostly about the president's priorities. I think what has happened here is exactly about a 50 seat, a quasi majority, 50 votes in the Senate, and they do not have 50 votes to change these rules. And that is the issue. And to the extent that infrastructure has gone before voting rights, I think that, that it's because there's just as much of a barrier in front of voting rights now as there was back in February. And because of these weirdnesses about these rules cover how votes can work under budgetary legislation, there's this path that there's not for now on voting. And that to me is the key issue. I agree. I think if Warnock said that, that would change, that would change the calculus pretty dramatically. Whether it would work, I don't know, but it would change it. It's always interesting to think about how you've got all the senators and yet it always seems to come down to two or four. And the Americans were always thinking to themselves, what is the point of the 46 others? Is there never any tension? And you're right, I know I preach to the choir in the sense of how Washington, D.C. works and how Capitol Hill, and note my use of air quotes on this podcast about how things work, so to speak. But I'm wondering, and whatever you guys think, is the process a pretextual excuse? Because it often feels that way to people. The idea of like, I'd love to help you out. Rules. I'd love to do that. And we've got this thing, this filibuster. And I know these are actual rules. And I know these are actually, and I don't take votes lightly. But I'm wondering sometimes how often people are using it for cover in the sense that there's the added element of voting that's not present when you're talking about, say, infrastructure. And that's the, the why it's a hot button issue. Voting in our country has a specific racial connotation and a racial history, and one in which it has been fundamentally about moving away from exclusion and at a snail's pace. And so when I hear about the process, I legitimately wonder to what degree the rules are pretextual and to what degree it is coincidental and to what degree it's completely and totally intentional that it makes sense to people. Because think about people who are marginalized, disenfranchised politically. They don't understand the nuances of why budget reconciliation or why this has happened or who is Senate parliamentarian and how can they be reversed in the way. And I think a lot of members of Congress can capitalize on what people don't understand. It's almost like a patronizing, well, 
you don't get how this really works yet. That's why we got to wait. It's a really interesting point. And there's even been some suggestions of behind the scenes kind of propping up or bolstering of the two senators by a couple other Dems. But I think it's old news that one or two senators might hold the body hostage on a particular issue. But here it's just this, I think, intellectual disconnect was the word you used. Voting rights, what could be more fundamental? And everyone understands that. Oh, but then we can't touch a hair on the head of the filibuster, I think is a pretty arcane concept for most people. Why not if this is so important? I want to shift slightly. You've mentioned a couple times in your responses, Laura, how so much of this comes back to the Voting Rights Act and the the two decisions of the Supreme Court, Shelby County and the more recent Brinovich decision, basically vitiating the most important enforcement provisions of the Voting Rights Act. So we have this week, Beto talked about the Cadillac version of For the People Act, the Mansionized version. We had this week introduced the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which comes at the problem from a different direction, basically seeking to reinstate the law from before the decisions and does more. One really important thing it does that was just added is it makes states have to bring forward proof of fraud if that's going to be their basis. Maybe this is all academic because it does seem like the Republicans said no no playing at all with anyone under for any reason. But this approach, if it were to pass, would it get most of the job done in another way? What would be the main problems left on the ground if the John Lewis Act actually became law? I think my basic sense is they're both critical, but they do different things. In the earlier round of this with Manchin, his line was sort of like, oh, I'm not going to do this for the People Act. I'm going to do the John Lewis Act. And that's the most important. And I think everybody who knows more about the detailed mechanics of this than I do is basically saying like, they're they're just both important. And this idea that you're going to compare them and say yours is better than the other, that that's just kind of nonsense. So either one of them leaves a lot undone that only the other one does. They're complementary, they're mutually reinforcing, and they're both necessary. But I would argue that the For the People Act, H.R. 1, Senate Bill 1, is the far more important one. And ironically, that's the bill that John Lewis actually wrote. Though H.R. 4 is named after him, he actually wrote a big chunk of the For the People Act. I would like in the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act as closing the barn door, which is great. And, and we want to stop further abuses and violations of people's voting rights. But the horses are already out in Texas. This is the most voter suppressed state in, in the union. It's harder to vote here than any other place in America. And that, that accounts for our god-awful level of, of voter turnout and some of the public servants that you have in office today and the horrific state of affairs in Texas, whether it's COVID in schools, the electricity grid failure that killed 700. To fix that, you need the For the People Act. You need to stop violations that are already in place. And then when we get to redistricting, which obviously is about to take place, if the John Lewis Voting Rights Act is introduced and passes somewhere down the line after districts are already established, I think it might take years to litigate under Section 2 the outcome on this. And in the interim, you will have the 2022 midterm election 
on a very tilted playing field with a very stacked deck and you will not have free and fair elections. You will not have a Senator Warnock going forward because the Republican legislature in Georgia without passage of the For the People Act has the ability to control county level elections boards and literally overturn the results of elections. And you have a similar proposal at a statewide level floated here in Texas. So we really need that one first. And I think that's why it was numbered the first bill in the House, the first bill in the Senate. It's got to pass. And yes, John Lewis is the Voting Rights Advancement Act is also really important to have some kind of preclearance provision restored to the Voting Rights Act. So they're both good and they're not mutually exclusive, but I do think we need that for the People Act or whatever iteration we're about to get when Manchin et al. propose their compromise solution a month from now. I would also say, and at least most of you or maybe all of you are lawyers and I'm not, but my basic understanding of this is that the things in the For the People Act are probably more legally durable under the current judicial system then, I mean, we've seen what has happened to the voting rights under this Voting Rights Act, under the Supreme Court. So all of those reasons, I think, point in the same direction, that if you really want to say one is more important than the other, at least urgency, I think, for the People Act. But again, it's this idea that you want vanilla or strawberry ice cream. That's not what we're talking about here. A quick legal point, though. Both of the decisions where the Supreme Court interpreting the Voting Rights Act in Shelby County, they said, we just don't see the need anymore, but Congress can come back. So I do think were it to pass, it would have durability in the voting rights area. But the question is, what would that do or what wouldn't it do? A quick closeout question here is I'm hearing people say that September, Schumer comes in and goes hard on this, including moving to eliminate the filibuster, and then it all comes down to Biden. Is that the landscape you see playing out in a month? I think calendars are always malleable. These are kind of battles with perception and stuff like that. If the Senate Democratic Caucus can get agreement from all 50 senators that the For the People Act is important enough to demand that it, it get an up or down vote, that can happen next May. Now, logistically, the impact of a lot of the law will be different. But there's all these things about calendars. This is all kind of things in people's heads and perception and stuff like that. It can happen whenever. And it's really that. Is it important enough that it gets an up or down vote? I love the, the way you phrase that. It is valuable. It's like a, a true spokesperson. They go, oh, yeah, it's just this thing about time. I love that. And I, I, I really, I'm going to use it, adopt it as my own one day. I think if there is a timeline, I don't think that there is a fire lit under members of Congress until the maps are starting to be drawn in the sense of what are we talking about? What's the power? And it's for so many people looking at, they say, how is it that there are conversations about the, the president's perhaps waning power or hold? Because it's only, what, August of 2021, his first term, his first year and his presidency. But we know that the midterms are knocking on the door right now and that that will be the shift in focus for people to figure out, hold on, what does the majority look like? And what lights a fire, I would think, and I'm sure obviously they don't even know this best, what lights a fire are those artificial deadlines imposed by elections to know, am I still going to be in the majority? Because if I'm still going to be in the majority later on, then I can reorder my priorities because I can get to that later. I'll have the votes made where I can do some more cajoling. If I'm balancing on a pin needle 
and I don't have much time left, I think that's going to structure it. So I th- I'm looking, frankly, to see how these maps are going to be drawn. There are members of people who are running for Congress right now who have no idea what office they're running for yet. They don't even know which, they know the office, they know which district we're talking about. And so I think that's going to be really the key catalyst for all of this. And if anything we've learned in the last year and a half is that we don't know what the crisis of next week might be, let alone trying to plan for six months from now. But I do think that the map drawing will be the catalyst for many to actually prioritize this. My point in the calendar is not saying, oh, it doesn't have to happen in September. It can come later or something like that. Quite the opposite. It's urgent that it happens right after they get back. My point in in saying it can happen in May is if it doesn't happen in September, people shouldn't listen to senators who say, oh, we missed the window. It can't happen now. It can happen next September. At every point until this Congress is over, all that is limiting it is 50 senators deciding to make it possible. So that's my point. Don't let anybody kind of say, oh, it's too late, because it's not too late. It's always about the collective decision of 50 senators. All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. Today's spirited debate comes with a bit of a twist as we look to the very top of the wine bottle and ask which is better, cork or screw top? At face value, people think screw top equals cheap wine, which, as it turns out, isn't exactly true. The reason for screw tops is to ensure the wine tastes as the winemaker intended. Cork, which has been used to seal wine bottles for over 100 years, is a proven way to age wine effectively by allowing minute amounts of air to come in contact with the wine. This slowly develops a softer texture and enhances flavor. Now cork, traditional as it is, has a downside called TCA, which causes something called cork taint. Now cork taint, while affecting a very small percentage of wines, can be a big disappointment, causing a musty aroma similar to the smell of wet cardboard and contaminating a great bottle of wine. We turn back again to screw caps, which are cork taint proof, of course, not to mention much easier to open, especially in a kitchen surrounded by witnesses. How the aging process affects wines with a screw cap is yet to be known as wineries continue to test. And while we wait for the results to pour in, we recommend you unscrew the top off a delicious bottle of Courtney Benham Cabernet Sauvignon. Whether it's a cork or screw top, at Total Wine & More, our guides will help you find the perfect wine to match your tastes. After all, it's not just about what's on top of the bottle, it's what's inside that counts. All right, it's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Today's topic, what possible criminal liability does former President Trump have for the events of January 6th and those that led up to it? And to explain it to us, we're really pleased to welcome Joshua Molina. He is best known for his role as Will Bailey in the NBC drama West Wing. You can also see him in the television show Sports Night, a fantastic show for those who haven't seen it, by the way. Big Bang Theory and Scandal. So I give you Joshua Molina on former President Trump's potential criminal liability. 
President Trump's potential crimes related to the insurrection. A large investigation is underway to find, charge, and convict the insurrectionist who stormed the Congress on January 6th to try to prevent or delay the certification of Joe Biden as president. That investigation will eventually come to focus on President Trump's role as an instigator of the riots. Trump potentially violated a number of criminal statutes. The most serious are in the criminal code chapter, treason, sedition, and subversive activities. The first possible charge is inciting rebellion or insurrection. That occurs when a defendant incites an uprising of U.S. citizens encouraging overthrow of the government. Significantly, people convicted of this crime are forever banned from holding any federal office. A more serious charge yet is seditious conspiracy. That occurs when two or more defendants reach an agreement to use force to overthrow the government, hinder the execution of federal law, or seize federal property. The agreement need not be expressed. It can be inferred by willful participation in the unlawful plan with intent to further it. In this case, possible incitement could be from Rudy Giuliani, who revved up the crowd with exhortations of, let's have trial by combat, or Donald Trump Jr., who said of members of Congress that, if you're going to be the zero and not the hero, we're coming for you. Restrictions on speech have a checkered history, including several notorious uses of the sedition statute to suppress valid political speech. In a case called Brandenburg v. Ohio, the Supreme Court has imposed a test, required by the First Amendment, that incendiary speech can be criminalized only if it was directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and was likely to incite or produce such action. So, in order to charge him, a government attorney will need to determine that Trump's speech crossed the line to inciting imminent lawless action. That's a factual determination that can only be made from a careful consideration of all the evidence, including Trump's initial call to the rioters to come to D.C. for the rally. That First Amendment requirement, however, doesn't apply to the impeachment action against Trump, which doesn't threaten his liberty. For Talking Feds, I'm Joshua Molina. Thanks very much, Joshua Molina. You can hear Joshua every week in the podcast, The West Wing Weekly, an episode-by-episode discussion of the celebrated TV series, which has an eye-popping 4.9 stars and 10,000 ratings on Apple Podcasts. Equitable access to high-quality health care is a right for everyone. It's not a privilege for some. Our Health California is a grassroots advocacy community fighting for statewide and federal health policies that advance affordable care for everyone. With more than 1 million health care supporters, Our Health California educates patients, health enthusiasts, and voters about health and mental health care, then connects supporters with lawmakers to advocate for change. Since 2019, Our Health California advocates have sent more than 46,000 messages to their lawmakers and taken nearly 168,000 advocacy actions. Visit ourhealthcalifornia.org to join and make your voice heard. It's free. Again, that's ourhealthcalifornia.org. Okay, let's move briefly over to the state side where there have been a spate of restrictive laws in GOP-controlled states 
designed to make it harder for likely Democratic voters to vote, all based on a spurious claim of preventing election fraud. Beto, the battle in Texas has been truly Texas-sized and sometimes operatic. The Dems have used every legal tool. They flee the state to prevent a quorum. Now, finally, yesterday, after Abbott, who has himself now just been diagnosed with COVID, he seems to have wrangled them back. And now there was a quorum for the first time yesterday. So I just wanted to have your sense. You're working it very hard on the ground. Does this mean that Abbott is going to get his brass knuckles bill? It's looking that way. It's interesting, though. The Texas State House Dems, who broke quorum for 38 days, it's the, the record in the history of the state of Texas, and heroically not only left the state and left their families and faced arrest upon return, but took the fight to D.C. And, and really tried to use that example or moral leverage to push the president and the Senate to act. And by their sacrifice, hopefully compel some action from an institution that was completely lacking in it. They've improved the prospects for the elections bill that's coming forward. During the regular session that ended in May, there was a provision that would cancel Sunday morning voting, which was a direct attack on black voters and souls to the polls programs. Texas, there was another provision that would allow Texas to overturn election results in any election where fraud was alleged even if the fraud would not have made a material difference, and even if the fraud was proven to begin with, precisely what Rudy Giuliani and former President Donald Trump were asking of secretaries of state across the country to do in statute in Texas that would have been possible. Both those provisions have been removed, I think in part because of the harsh public light shines on this bill through the actions of the Dems and, frankly, a large engaged citizenry in Texas that just isn't happening and is forcing some pushback. So the bill will still be bad. It won't be as bad. And what I think they also accomplished was they nationalized this problem in the states and got us all talking about it. Maybe not on this podcast, you would have anyhow, but I think for many newscasts across the country and many people who otherwise were unaware of how dire the situation was, they were able to prove how this harms low-income voters, voters with disabilities, voters who live in urban counties, and those who are working and just do not have the ability to vote at $7.25 an hour when you're working two shifts and may not be able to vote by mail and may no longer be able to use 24-hour voting in Harris County. So they made some real gains, but we come back to where we started. Texas has done all Texas can do President Biden, it is now up to you to do your part and we will support you to the hilt, but you got to move and you got to move soon. And to Josh's point, maybe the calendar is malleable, but my sense is if they don't move by early fall, I don't see them down the road saying, hey, don't we have a, a voting rights bill we should be working on? I don't see public pressure mobilizing with the intensity that we've seen demonstrated so far. I think what we really have this window that's closing on us pretty quick. And it calls for the one unique, exceptional tool that can get this across, and that's presidential leadership. I 100% agree on timing, just to make that point clear. And I guess what you said is so important. I just wonder, is it clear to people what is meant by what presidential leadership really would look like? So when people say Biden's got to do more, what is it that's being asked of? Is it executive order? Is it leading and pressure? Is it leading the public awareness campaign? Is it using the sort of bully pulpit 
what is it specifically that you think the president should or could be doing with the role that he has to really ensure that that happens? Imagine if a month ago in Philadelphia, after he just described this as the greatest single attack on American democracy since the Civil War, instead of saying, buck up people, and let's just overcome this somehow, he said, I want this bill on my desk no later than 6th of August, 56th anniversary of the original Voting Rights Act. And I'm going to ask for the political courage that's been missing in this fight so far. I, I want those senators who believe in our democracy to change the rules of the filibuster as it has been changed for budget reconciliation, fast track trade deals for Supreme Court nominations and for federal judges. Let's make one more exception. I know this isn't easy. And listen, nobody believes in bipartisanship more than me, Joe Biden. But for the future bipartisan success of this democracy, we've got to do the right thing now. I'm asking for that. And then maybe to tear a page out of LBJ's book, convene a joint session and make that case and put yourself fully on this. I wonder, and I don't know if those closest to the president are warning him off this and saying, you do not want to be attached to a cause that may not prevail. I don't know that we're going to get the votes. This could go down in flames and, and it could hurt you bad. So why don't you just say that we're under attack, Senate, you got to do your job and, and leave it to them. If I had to guess, that's kind of where things are. I think we, the public, need to see him and the senators need to see him fully engaged in this fight. And then, Laura, the thing we don't know is what's happening behind the scenes. Those famous pictures of LBJ leaning over the senators, literally almost browbeating them. In Texas. That's right. It's, it's been getting, there's been three of them, right? That's exactly right. Just every muscle, every atom of his being invested in this fight. There have been almost 300, 500 meetings on infrastructure. There have not been hundreds of meetings on democracy. I almost guarantee it. So there's extraordinary untapped capacity within that office, and he's got to use it. Those are some of the things I'd love to see. Okay, what are Biden's political advisors telling him? This is a matter of raw political calculations. What's involved for him and whether he comes out strong in favor of the filibuster and the voting rights bills? I'll just briefly give my take and then listen to others. But from the vice president's speech about committing $25 million from the DNC to voter registration and then saying, people keep asking us if we have a voting rights strategy, this is it, to the president failing to name any kind of strategy to address the historic attack on our democracy, to the consensus from the allied community that the advice is just to out-organize voter suppression and anti-democracy attacks. My sense is that the political team there maybe doesn't see this as a, a winning battle or, or maybe just a really messy, confusing one. From somebody who's been working on this for the last year, that's certainly the way it feels. My take is similar to yours in the sense, but also different than most of yours in the sense that I think this is really about mansion and cinema and the inability to get them to move on this. And I think they do not feel that they can move those two. And because they don't have a plan for how to move those two, I think that his political advisors are probably saying, yeah. Don't walk out on this plank because you're just going to walk off and fall in the water. And then you'll both have fallen in the water and have no For the People Act. That is my read of what's going on here. The thing is, I am pessimistic about how much pressuring power the president has here. And I hope I'm wrong. That's my read. 
There you have it. And we could go 10 more hours on this and it will be playing out however malleable the schedule is. It'll certainly be front burner come September. We have just a couple minutes for our final feature of Five Words or Fewer, where we take a question from a listener and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. Today's question comes from Elijah Chambers, who asks, the tide seems to be going in the other direction from them. Are they going to have to surrender their vehement opposition to forbidding school districts from mandating masks? Five words or fewer, please. They're losing, and that's good. Who could follow that? The writing is on walls. And how about, we need our kids safe. There you go. Uh, Protect our kids. Wow, 15 perfect words. I think this is as good as it gets on five words or fewer. And I will say, it's the rule of holes. All right, that's all we have time for today and what has been, I think, a really illuminating and splendid discussion about voting rights. Thank you very much to Laura, Josh, and Beto. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters, such as the conversation I just had with Professor Lori Levinson about the California recall election. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com. Whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett and Record Edit Podcast. Our editors are Dustin Naus and Matt McArdle. David Lieberman, Rosie Don Griffin, and Olivia Henriksen are our contributing writers. Research assistance by Abby Meyer. Our consulting producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. And Kalena Tano handles our social media. Thanks to Joshua Molina for explaining to us former President Trump's potential criminal liability for the January 6th events and those leading up to it. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time. <laughs>